Hey, Bankless Nation, welcome to another State of the Nation edition. David, this is going to be a bullish episode. I, are you ready to be bullish, man? Uh, always, Ryan. It's my natural state. Uh, and we're <laughs> going to get some extra help to do that today, too. Uh, yeah, so we have uh, two of the analysts be, be behind a report just put out by ARK Invest. And so if you, you remember the, the ARK folks, we had Kathy Wood on the podcast uh, a few months ago. And with her, an analyst, uh, Yassine, who covers this space, we have two of the analysts who just published a 2022 update on prices. And we got to say, it's maybe the most bullish price report that we've seen. Like I'm, I'm almost worried, David, that uh, the, these prices that we're about to say are uh, more bullish than anything we've ever talked about on Bankless. Yeah. Uh, what are these price targets for Bitcoin and ETH? Yeah, we are coming in with a hot prediction of a million dollar per Bitcoin and a hundred eighty thousand dollar per ETH, which is really bullish. Now, granted, we have between eight and ten years to get those price prices. It's not coming next month. It's, it's, it's not, not next month. Not it's not May. next year. Uh, but still, at the end of the day, when when people like Ark, who you know are famous for actually being able to look into the future rather than look towards the past to guide the future, come in with a hot prediction like that, I want to understand the math and the analysis and the reasoning behind these numbers because these aren't just some random crypto YouTubers pulling some numbers out of their wherevers. Like these are these are ARC analysts who say that these are ridiculous numbers. And so we want to see why are they actually not ridiculous? Because they have a whole report, which is also linked in the show notes as well. Uh, if you guys want to follow along, there's a whole report uh, to guide some of these models and predictions. So we got the receipts here. We're going to go through uh, the, the slides, go through the rationale of why 180K ETH and why $1 million per Bitcoin uh, in, in just a minute. Uh, David, before we get in, got to talk about our friends at Notional Finance. So I'm going to I'm about to sound like uh, Grandpa DeFi here. Once again. Back in my day, don't say that. Back in my day, okay, there was no such thing in DeFi as a fixed rate loan, okay? We had volatile, like every block adjustment variable rate loans for just about everything. Mm -hmm. And so if you took out a loan at like, you know, 3%, uh, one day it could crank up to like 10% the next. And the same was in true. In DeFi summer, it got to 60. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and the same is true with interest, right? You could be making like nice, you know, 5% gains one day and suddenly you're down to 1%. And you're like, what happened? Right. Well, now the kids these days have the benefit <laughs> of fixed APY loans, okay? And Notional is putting one out there in DeFi. Uh, look at this, $432 million locked in this protocol, $279 million loan value, 8.57% uh, fixed APY loan on up to a year for USDC. That's what you can get at Notional right now. Uh, pretty awesome to see. Yeah, the last time I saw a fixed rate uh, uh, loan platform, it was down at like 3.5%. Uh, this is the highest fixed rate uh, APY platform that I've ever seen. Uh, there is a link in the show notes to go check it out uh, if you are interested in getting a fixed rate loan on your crypto assets. There you go. That That's it, guys. So uh, head over to Notional and um, and make that happen. Get some of those fixed rate loans uh, and uh, and lend some of your, your assets as well. Uh, David, got to ask you the question we start every episode with, every state of the nation that is, which is what is the state of the nation today? Uh, it's bullish, Ryan. State of the nation is, is very bullish. Okay. Um, 
You, I mean, bankless listeners will know that Ryan and I are bullish, but like we're always bullish. So sometimes like we start people making get sick of hearing. It yeah. Us. So we start making content. We start like interviewing people in like Washington, D.C. Or we start, you know, asking Vitalik about the future of the Ethereum roadmap. And then sometimes we forgot to forget to talk about like how incredibly bullish we are. Uh, and it's also nice to bring in the ARC analysts because they come in it from a different perspective. Uh, and uh, and so we we like people who are bullish and want to talk about bullish things. So, Ryan, the state of the nation today is bullish. All right. Well, I'm ready to get more bullish and uh, our guests are as well. So guys, we will be back with the ARC analysts, in, uh, ARC analysts talking about 1 million Bitcoin price target, 180K ETH price target in just a minute. Before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. Alchemix is a DeFi app that offers self-repaying loans that lets you spend money and save money at the same time. Alchemix allows you to deposit the DAI stablecoin into its vaults, which earns some of the highest yields that DeFi has to offer. You can then take a loan from Alchemix of up to 50% of the deposited DAI, and that loan automatically pays itself back from the yield that is generated from your deposit. It's a savings account that the banks don't want you to know about. Alchemix also has ETH vaults available, so you, you can get a self-repaying loan that's denominated in ETH. Coming up in Alchemix V2 is a bunch of cool new features such as credit delegation, multi-chain expansion, and DAO revenue sharing and vote boosting. Alchemix lets you get your interest payments on your deposits paid to you upfront. Check out the power of Alchemix at alchemix.fi and make sure to join their extremely vibrant Discord if you want to participate in governance or have any questions about the project. Living a bankless life requires taking control of your own private keys. Not your keys, not your crypto. That's why so many in the bankless nation already have their Ledger hardware wallet. But the Ledger ecosystem is much more than just a secure hardware wallet. Ledger is the combination of the Ledger hardware wallet, the Ledger Live app, and soon the CL Crypto Life card powered by Ledger. The CL card powered by Ledger is a crypto debit card with powerful features like an instant exchange to fiat, where crypto assets are only sold at the moment that you swipe your card, and also credit from crypto collateral where you can collateralize your crypto assets in order to get a higher credit limit. You'll be able to manage your CL card powered by Ledger inside the Ledger Live app, right next to all the DeFi apps and services that you're already used to using, making the Ledger Live app your one-stop shop for all of your financial needs. Go to ledger.com, grab a Ledger, and download Ledger Live to get all of your DeFi applications all in one place. The Layer 2 era is upon us. Ethereum's Layer 2 ecosystem is growing every day, and we need L2 bridges to be fast and efficient in order to live a Layer 2 life. Across is the fastest and cheapest and most secure cross-chain bridge. With Across, you don't have to worry about the long wait times or high fees to get your assets back to the Layer 1. Assets are bridged and available for use almost instantaneously. Across's bridges are powered by UMA's optimistic Oracle to securely transfer tokens from Layer 2 back to Ethereum. Across is critical ecosystem infrastructure and ownership is being handed over to the community. You can be a part of this story of Across by joining the Discord and becoming a co-founder and helping to design the fair fair launch of Across. If you want to bridge your assets quickly and securely, Go to across.to to bridge your assets between ETH, Optimism, Arbitrum, or Boba Networks. Hey guys, we are back with the analyst from ARK Invest. I want to introduce you to Yassine Almadra. He's been on the podcast before. Yassine joined ARK Invest in July 2018. Uh, he was ARK's blockchain crypto analyst, still is. His research focuses on crypto assets, of course as well as a Bitcoin mining. I've, I've been told Yassine is the Bitcoin bull 
in the group. Uh, also joining, who's joining us is Frank Downing. Frank joined ARC in April, 2021. He uh, was an analyst for ARC's next generation internet strategy. He's focused on cloud computing, software as a service, now crypto assets. Guys, the two of you wrote a fantastic report. Really excited to dive into it. Welcome to Bankless. Thanks for having us. Uh, honored to be here. Good, good to be back again, this time with, uh, with my partner in crime, Frank. Uh, so we're really excited to, to share some of this, this moon juice that we have for you. <laughs> <laughs> good description, moon juice. Uh, all right, you know what? I think just maybe get, getting some background on both of you would be, would be useful before we dive into the, the details of this big ideas uh, report. Maybe listeners want to peek in the, uh, the inside life of an ARC analyst. So what does it actually mean to be an analyst at ARC? What's the day-to-day, Yassine? Why don't we start with you? Sure. I mean, I guess the best way to describe it is it's really just a front row seat on all things tech. Uh, by way of background, I studied engineering and finance when I was in school and fell down the crypto rabbit hole. Uh, in, in early 2017 and kind of told myself, okay, I'm committed to finding an opportunity that will allow me to basically fall down the rabbit hole even further uh, and stumbled upon ARC through Twitter. Uh, and ultimately, uh, here I am about four years later uh, as an analyst that, that really has a lot of flexibility in terms of, kind of discovering kind of the different multiple rabbit holes within crypto. Uh, so. I'd say much of the work is divided between just day-to-day kind of research of, okay, let's think kind of top-down long-term theses of how we think the industry is evolving, uh, combined with, you know, more of the product development side of, okay, we are asset managers, uh, and what, how do we answer the question of what's the best way to gain exposure uh, to this asset class? Frank, how about you? So you've been at ARC for uh, almost up to a year now. So what's the day-to-day like for you? What would you add to what you've seen said? Yeah, getting up on a year now, it's, it's pretty crazy how fast time has flown. Um, but I actually, similar to you've seen, I studied business and computer science and um, fell into the crypto rabbit hole also in 2017, um, building my, I spent pretty much all the cash I had to build a few GPU mining rigs at my house <laughs> uh, and had to convince my parents that I wasn't going to set the house on fire. Well, that is the um, same exact story how I got into Ethereum. So same, we have same, alignment there. Uh, same time. Well, yeah. Same timing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but the the day to day at Arc, I mean, it was it was pitched to me as uh, essentially getting paid to to study and report on what you're most interested in, which uh, for me is both crypto and cloud computing. My my previous career, I was a, a data engineer and a and a cloud engineer. Um, and I now get to do both of those day-to-day at ARC, which is awesome. Um, we spend our weeks uh, kind of chalked up into a few different segments. Mondays are always uh, portfolio reviews, looking at our holdings and, and in aggregate what happened over the market in the past week. Uh, the middle of the week is more this long-form, long-term thinking research that you've seen mentioned. And then Fridays, we have a, a brainstorm with um, advi- a group of advisors and, and external parties to help battle test our thinking and mm. talk about the latest and greatest things. And crypto, <laughs> even just over my time here, crypto has taken up a larger and larger portion of that brainstorm, which is always pretty fun. 
Well, guys, it sounds like you guys both have dream jobs that you have a ton of fun in. Uh, and while be right before we get in, into this report, I just kind of want to uh, also con- uh, give context to the listeners about what this report actually is. It's not just about crypto. It's about everything that ARK pays attention to, uh, and which is a lot. Um, and so there's even more than just crypto in here. Crypto is actually just one of many sections in here as well. But did you guys have, are you guys' fingerprints in this report? Did you guys help like write this or how were you guys involved with the actual creation of this report? Sure. So I mean, maybe taking a step back and giving context as to how we're, we're divided um, across the analyst team. So we aren't kind of a traditional uh, asset management shop where uh, or analysts are divided by sectors. They're actually divided by technology platforms. And uh, we have three, uh, sorry, five technology platforms that we uh, effectively center our research around. Um, so, uh, you know, crypto is one of those. We have genomics, DNA sequencing, energy, robotics, AI, deep learning. Uh, and so our analysts uh, are kind of experts in these thematic platforms. Uh, so there are five thematic platforms that all have. 14 uh, emerging technologies that come out of those platforms. And you can see here, there there are a dozen or so sections that touch on it. Uh, And each analyst effectively is is the one drafting and and building out their respective sections. Okay, so uh, just to reiterate, Yassine, you are the big Bitcoin bull. So it sounds like you had a lot of your, your fingerprints on the Bitcoin section. And then Frank, you're the, the Ethereum ETH bull. Uh, were you also involved, Frank, with the NFT metaverse side as well? Yeah, it was uh, myself plus our uh, other next generation internet analysts, Nick Groose and Andrew Kim, who also work on that team. Um, we try to be as collaborative as possible, particularly because a lot of these technologies are converging. And crypto is, especially when you get into Web3 metaverse, is so tightly integrated to the consumer internet uh, that Nick plays as much a hand in that section as we play. Um, and we, you know, the, the crypto overview section, the first crypto section that's in there was really the whole team working on it. Um, and it's, uh, it's awesome to see that report come out and get to talk about it in more long form environments like this. It, it really is the culmination of like six plus months worth of work to, to put that together. Well, you guys are certainly making our job easier at Bankless to report on why these big ideas are so fun to talk about. So let's go ahead and, and dive right into it. And it sounds like this uh, show is going to come in three sections. Uh, and also, I'm going to start reformatting this OBS. That's why the screen is moving around for these viewers out there. Um, so we're going to talk about Bitcoin first, and then we're going to talk about ETH second, but then NFT Metaverse third. So Yassine's probably going to have most of the floor for the first half of the show, and then we'll fi- finish up with Frank for the Ethereum Metaverse stuff for the second half of the show. Uh, but this is, this, this is probably the section that you were talking about where everyone probably had their hands in these first few slides about blockchains and crypto assets. And it's just a really nice slide to start on first. And again, if listeners want to go and click that link in the show notes so they can follow along, this is slide number 41. Uh, but this is just the bull case for crypto and blockchain at large. And the title of this slide is Public Blockchains Could Transform Every Traditional Asset Class. And th- this is the metaphor that I think maybe people have heard before where for, you know, we had all these different communication mediums, the radio, the TV, the newspaper, the in- uh, and, and then the internet came along. And then all of a sudden, all those things got bundled up into the internet. And this slide is doing the same thing for financial assets. Uh, is this basically, is the conclusion of uh, ARC and, and also this part of the report, just that every single financial asset will eventually become a crypto asset? I think that's, that's spot on in terms of the framing. I think 
part of the reason for this slide is that usually the framing to describe crypto assets as an entirely new asset class is one that suggests that it's distinct from traditional asset classes, right? And spans every super class. So, you know, we published a paper in 2017 that basically suggested that crypto assets can't really fit under the equity bucket or the bond bucket or the physical commodities bucket. Uh, and it's not really a capital asset or a store of value asset or a consumable transformable asset. It's almost like all in, all, all in the same. So the initial premise is not only is crypto distinct from traditional asset classes, but it also is going to transform traditional asset classes. And it's going to affect the same asset classes that it doesn't really fit under. Uh, this was actually a framing that was introduced by Balaji uh, Srinivasanan, uh, who, who like quite eloquently explains how we're seeing a generational shift from internet to crypto uh, in the same way that we saw a shift from like desktop to the internet. And the analogy that he likes to give is like blockchains are to scarcity what the internet was to information. And this fundamentally changes kind of how software is developed, how it's funded, how it's monetized, how it's used. And we're moving from kind of online to on-chain. Uh, and by moving online to on-chain, then we have these sort of assets that can, that of, of course can represent scarcity, that can represent ownership, that effectively, uh, you know, that, that, that affect traditional asset classes. So whether that's synthetic equity exposure through crypto equities, whether it's kind of the crypto commodities through kind of the ability uh, to, to send bandwidth or storage. Uh, we're seeing the rise of NFTs and crypto art and store of value assets, or you know, maybe the traditional kind of corporate structure and DAOs. Uh, so all of these really are, are derivatives of traditional asset classes that crypto is distinct from, but in, in turn, we're actually seeing that it's impacting them. Frank, if you want to add anything onto that, go ahead. But I also want to throw to you the question. I'm assuming at some time in your role in ARC, uh, you guys have to explain concepts like this to people who are still trying to wrap their heads around it. How does that uh, mental model land with people? Is that helpful to explain crypto or are people skeptical when you explain that concept to them? So I, I would say that the, the easiest explanation is one that shows crypto as being a distinct and separate asset class, right? So it's like, okay, how do you value crypto? Well, you can't value it like an equity or you can't imply like a DCF necessarily, especially for these non-productive monetary assets. Um, it's not really like a bond. It's not really like a commodity. And so, and so providing a framework by which they understand how to assess uh, traditional asset classes, you can then just say, crypto asset, the reason why you don't understand it is because it requires an entirely new framework. Um, so so, so it's effectively don't try to force fit the traditional framework into trying to uh, understand uh, crypto assets. Uh, I, I think increasingly th there is, uh, people are resonating with how crypto can transform every traditional asset class, especially as the investment theses and the use cases in crypto develop uh, where there isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all model. We're seeing a lot of kind of revolutions emerge uh, that are in parallel with, you know, the Bitcoin or the monetary revolution that might require like a new kind of framing uh, that more closely aligns to what they're familiar with. So any opportunity that we have to draw to kind of the old world or traditional frameworks is one that uh, resonates with, with the people that we're speaking to. And I think this does a, a pretty good job doing that.
So Frank, you you came from like a software as a service, next gen cloud platform sort of world too, and like the engineering background. You know, A16Z talks about this in a similar term. They they talk about it looks software is eating the world. And now the framing for uh, crypto is software is coming to eat money and finance and digitally scarce things. All of the di all of the scarce things that we have as assets. Is that good framing in your mind? Do you think that this is just the same movement of software eating the world and this time it's coming for banks? Yeah, I, I think it is. And I'll steal, I think one of Yassine's line, but, lines, but uh, we're at a stage where, you know, uh, every bank and traditional financial firm has to have a, a fintech strategy now because fintech has been disrupting the traditional banks. And I think we're getting to a stage going forward where every fintech needs to have a crypto strategy. And crypto is where that industry is evolving and moving on to more crypto native rails. And with regards to kind of this slide and, and especially relating it to the internet and, and software, like the more that we can tie these new paradigms to, you know, what the traditional world thinks, I think like the evolution of the internet is a very uh, tangible topic for people because they use these services every day and being able to relate that to how crypto is slowly taking over those more traditional platforms or the more traditional financial services, uh, the better we can be at educating. Okay, so uh, let's keep moving in the slide deck. And I want to move maybe to uh, slide 43, which um you know, the, the title of this slide is each revolution involves a different level of trust. And I think at this point in the crypto section, you sort of established that crypto is coming for finance and digital scarcity. It is eating the world. This is another, you know, software eating the world type moment. And the next question that somebody new to crypto might have for you, even somebody in crypto is, okay, yeah, but what's the difference between a Bitcoin and Ethereum and an Avalanche and a Terra and like Binance uh, smart chain and go down the list of all of these assets. And to someone who's new, they look at the assets and they're just like, ah, they kind of all look the same. Mm -hmm. or, like, what's the difference? And I think this slide does a really good job talking about the spectrum of centralized trust and decentralized trust. So decentralized trust on the left and centralized trust on the right, and the use cases that generally fall out of that section. So there are three use cases here. Um, the first requiring the highest degree of decentralized trust is the money revolution. We can talk about that. Uh, so somewhat in the middle, but still skewing towards the decentralized trust side of things is the financial and internet revolution. So we might fit DeFi here as well as um, you know, some of the Web3 things that are coming out. And then on the, on the right side of the spectrum, the centralized trust side of the spectrum is basically traditional finance, where we have the status quo and the banking system as we know it. And each of these um, platforms, each of these chains, each of these assets sort of fit in different places on the, the, the spectrum of centralization and decentralization. Yassine, could you give us kind of the big idea from this slide and talk about where some of these major platforms fit and why they fit in the places they do, in, in your opinion. Sure, honestly, I think you summed it up perfectly and it's it's great that, that you did because we grappled a lot with this slide. And with the main takeaway that we wanted from this slide to be that there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs and these trade-offs are made to achieve the functionality and the security appropriate for a specific use case. So the, 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 the idea that we compare blockchains without recognizing their distinctive design or value proposition, I think is, is very counterproductive and why you know, there's so much animosity between chains. Uh, what we've tried to present here is that there are different revolutions that are evolving in parallel. 
Uh, we think that the most profound is the money revolution, but each of these revolutions are going to require uh, a different set of trade-offs and, and network implementations. And so you have especially these newer market participants that are questioning, you know, why are Bitcoiners so only interested in Bitcoin, right? Or why do you have these Bitcoin maximalists that think all these other chains are a scam? Uh, and, and, and they kind of fault them for being closed-minded or unwilling to compromise. Uh, but it actually ties back to some of Bitcoin's principles, which, you know, in our view, can't be replicated by other public blockchains. And this includes like a very strong regard for property rights or a high predictability in monetary policy, a commitment to cheap validation and decentralization, a fairness and issuance through proof of work. All of these, we think, make it a prime candidate to compete as a global-based money uh, which we think is a revolution that necessitates decentralization and security over something like uh, scalability or features. Uh, but as we move along the spectrum, and, and to your point, Ryan, we, we start to see public blockchains like Ethereum and, and to an even larger extent, Solana and Avalanche and Terra that are, that are trading off that potential trust minimization for convenience, for more features, for higher throughput. Which, which to your point, if you are going to kind of create a DeFi ecosystem or a Web 3.0, it, it is likely you know, necessary to, to fulfill the, those, those demands that users have. Um, so the biggest question is like, what does that, that perfect balance look like, especially in the financial and internet revolution? I think we have a good idea that the money revolution is going to require max conservatism uh, and the more boring and predictable it is, the better. And on the status quo, it's like you're unapologetically centralized. So if you're a Visa or a PayPal, it's like I kind of trust the, the intermediaries that are facilitating the flow of transactions. So the big question, and I, and I, I know Frank has a lot, on, a lot of thoughts on this, is what does that perfect balance look like? Um, and what are some of the dynamics that are emerging, let's say, between Ethereum versus Solana and trying to strike that perfect balance? I think it's interesting. So, you know, how you, how you drew this where Bitcoin is squarely in the money revolution, you have Ethereum sort of spanning money revolution and financial and internet revolutions. And like in the, in the center, not necessarily dipping into money are like Solana, Avalanche and Terra and Binance is sort of almost a little bit status quo. Ridiculously yet, centralized. Right. It's, it's much more centralized. Like, and I, I do think probably some people looking at the slide might quibble with, you know, where the placement is. Right. So, um, like myself personally, I probably would have extended Ethereum even further into the money revolution. Um, but also it's interesting because some of these, these platforms change over time, right? And so maybe you might argue uh, Ethereum squarely started in the center and has kind of stretched into the money revolution over time as it's being used more as, as money. But regardless, I'm, I'm curious, Frank, maybe you could weigh in here on the rationale. So why is Bitcoin squarely on the left? Why is Ethereum sort of spanning? Why are Solana, Avalanche, and Terra kind of in the center? Why is Binance Smart Chain? Why is it sticking into the status quo lane? Can you just give us a high level for why these specific projects in the, in the place that they're in? Definitely. And, and first, I, I draw the, the difference, one of the primary differences that leads to placement between the money revolution and the financial and internet revolutions, like Yassine said, is conservatism. For a base money that is resistant to nation state level attacks or influences that has maximal assurances of, of seizure resistance, you need to know that what you're building on or what you're holding is consistent and not changing. And that's actually completely different from what you may need to compete in the financial and internet revolutions. 
which is the frontier of technology, being able to push out updates so you can process more transactions or enable new types of transactions or generally enable greater functionality. And so that's why Bitcoin, uh, because it has this ethos of we are not changing, we are not evolving, uh, at least uh, to the extent that these other chains are, uh, puts it in that monetary revolution. When you look towards financial internet, to compete, Ethereum we know has the ETH 2.0 vision. We're going to go proof of stake, we're going to uh, enable sharding, we're pushing on rollups, we're, we're, we have many EIPs that are being rolled out. And, and that's what enables it really to, to compete with some of these newer chains like Solana, Avalanche, and Terra, which uh, don't necessarily have the stability or the track record to be considered money. And the economies that are built on top of them are much smaller. So they're not really being used as money uh, to the same extent as Ether is. Uh, if you look at Ether and DeFi, it's a pristine form of collateral. It's with ETH 2.0 or with proof of stake going to be uh, this internet bond, so to speak, with the staking yield. Um, it, it does for, and it's the main currency denominating a majority of NFT volume across any chain. Uh, so it is functioning as money, and that's why we have it splayed across. Um, Solana, Avalanche, and Terra are making this uh, what I, we would consider a distinct trade-off of pushing through more throughput at, at a lower fee, uh, but sacrificing some of that stability and some of that level of decentralization by having greater requirements to operate the network or having a more centralized token holder base, which is increasingly important uh, in terms of the level of decentralization in proof of stake compared to proof of work. Because in proof of stake, your influence is denominated in the tokens that you hold rather than the mining hardware, which is uh, off network. Um, when you look at Binance Smart Chain, it has some of the aspects of public blockchains. It's composable, it's open and transparent, um, mostly anybody can read and write, with the exception that that guarantee uh, that anybody can read and write is dictated by a much smaller, more centralized group of validators. So it may look like it offers you everything as, public, uh, as a public blockchain, but you need to make a trust assumption that these validators will continue to operate that network in a way that gives you these features. And so that's what pushes it closer to the status quo. If there was a, a desire to, to censor some transactions or, or throttle the network in some way, the validators controlled by Binance could probably do that pretty easily, which is not unlike Amazon delisting a seller or Visa blocking certain transactions. And the, the more you make these uh, trade-offs in terms of the trust assumptions required to operate the network, the closer you get to the status quo on the right. Fun fact about Binance Smart Chain, they just uh, re renamed themselves to BNB Chain. I saw this morning. I think really? they want to separate <laughs> I think they want to separate the Binance name mm. from this thing that they're creating so that they're not known as like Binance affiliated, right? So it's an interesting way to try to try to span yeah. these columns here. Yeah, and that's also like to your point how they they can change over time based on how the network evolves. It is that is Solana which is I would say made sacrifices in decentralization to promote high throughput, going to progressively decentralize and move its place on this chain. And is Ether or Ethereum in, uh, in necessity to compete with Solana on the throughput, is that going to force Ethereum to make some sacrifices on decentralization as well to compete on the throughput side? And what's, uh, so fun, what's always funny about this game too, Frank, is like um, there's a lot of profit and money to be made in playing the decentralized theater game as well, 
which is why it's hard, I think, for outsiders to like look at this space and get some objective viewpoint because all of these chains, I think, will tell you, many of them will, that they are equally decentralized as well, right? At least some of their marketing language will. The, the trade-offs don't always get acknowledged. This is a, a separate discussion, of course, but yeah, David, you wanted to say something. Yeah, you got you talked about how these things tend to change over time. So I'm I'm hoping next time you guys write this uh, report, this uh, big ideas report, that you guys keep this slide and you know reorient the placement of these different chains as they get updated in 2023 and 2024. If I had a prediction, we would actually see some uh, Ethereum layer twos also on the right side of the financial and internet revolution spectrum, filling up that gap as well. Uh, and even perhaps Ether's deflationary aspect allows Ether to push into the left side uh, into the money revolution as well in, in addition to that. But this is the- David, bank, if you want that, This is the bankless report, bias man. coming out now. So <laughs> there's that. These guys wrote the report. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. It, it okay. is well, I think it is well taken. One of the questions that we had is, should we make these bands of equal length and mm. just- Kind of commit to um, a more you know subjective placement, but perhaps there is a scenario where the bands lengthen in some ways. Uh, you know, I go back to the fact that I still think that you know there are no solutions and only trade-offs, and that's the trade-off that people that these chains are going to have to make. But well taken, definitely well taken. As I want to skip ahead to slide uh, 55, because this is where we start to get into some of the fun stuff. Uh, this, this is the, the, the Bitcoin t headline title. The price of one Bitcoin could exceed $1 million by 2030. And there's a bunch of math that goes into it. And this is the, uh, the reason why I'm not an analyst, because I kind of don't really understand how these numbers came to be. But Yassine, can you kind of just walk us through the slide about how this $1 million Bitcoin prediction came to be? Sure. I, I think for context, it'd be helpful if you could just briefly go to the previous slide to give you just what that actually means in the context of traditional asset classes. So first off, if you believe that crypto broadly is a distinct asset class, it's also going to affect other asset classes. Uh, then you'd imagine that you know in the next few decades, it, it's going to be on par uh, with other asset classes. Um, so you know we we've sort of uh, sized the opportunity as in the next ten years. Uh, as, as being, you know, a 25 fold from where it is today, which would amount to about a $28 trillion market cap. Uh, but in the context of global equities and M2 and global bonds and real estate, uh, that, that, that's actually still only a fraction of, of the, the broader kind of asset class base. Um, so with that, the $1 million does sound, uh, you know, quite uh, like, a, like an insane number to throw around. Uh, so if you go to the next slide, we can we can break that down. Yeah, and, um, and real quick, I will note, you've sure. seen though that uh, th this uh, you know twenty eight trillion dollar like price would be yeah. you know almost three x gold. So that in itself is fairly bold. That, that's right. That that is right. Uh, and so you can kind of make the argument again that uh, Bitcoin is going to challenge gold as a global store of value. You can see in the opportunities slide that we we actually estimate that Bitcoin will in the gold use case only capture around 50% of gold's market share as a digital store of value. Hmm. Uh, but I, I'd make the argument that, you know, Bitcoin is a hundred X better version of gold. It's, it's hmm. more portable, it's more divisible. Uh, you know, every marginal kind of uh, in individual who's transitioning from the physical to the digital world isn't thinking about buying gold. I've never considered ever buying gold. Uh, and yet every chance I have, I, I buy Bitcoin. 
Uh, so there is kind of just a, a, a shift in, in the mentality of, of, uh, of these kind of next generation asset holders. Um, but with that being said, it, 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 it is a big number. Um, it's, it is relative to when we first sized the opportunity though, a smaller jump. So we actually first gained exposure uh, to Bitcoin in 2015 uh, through GBTC uh, when Bitcoin was trading around $200. And at the time we had predicted a, a $50,000 price. And you'd imagine like a $200 to 50,000, you must be absolutely absurd, right? That's a 200X from, from here. Um, so, you know, we're effectively predicting a 50X to, uh, I'm sorry, uh, a 50,000 to a million dollar price, which in relative terms is a 20X. So actually an order of magnitude less than kind of the previous uh, predictions that we've had. I think that the main takeaway from sizing the opportunity broadly and how we think about it is Bitcoin's use cases, given it is a monetary asset that has a fixed supply, are additive, right? So there's a fixed 21 million Bitcoin supply cap, which means that for every Bitcoin that's being used as a digital gold, can't be used as a remittance asset. And for every Bitcoin that's being used as a remittance asset, can't be used as protection against arbitrary asset seizure. So when you combine kind of the 21 million fixed supply with the fact that that supply itself is becoming more and more longer term focused where people are buying and never, you know, adding to and, and, and never willing to sell, then the price multiplier as well increases where now for every dollar that flows into the asset, the, the reflection on what that looks like for market cap is not necessarily $1. It might be $10. It might be $25. Uh, so the point is that for many of these use cases, specifically for the nation state treasury and for the corporate treasury, we have assumed a price multiplier um, where you look at kind of the liquid supply that's available in Bitcoin and you just take that as kind of the denominator set that's absorbing, uh, you know, new demand. For hey, see, before other we move on, I want to just reiterate that point because that's that's a point about Bitcoin that I've never heard before that I think is really cool. What you what you just said is that because buyers of Bitcoin tend to be long term focused, a dollar of buying Bitcoin at thirty thousand dollar price tag has some amount of impact on the price, but a dollar at buying the three hundred thousand dollar Bitcoin price has an outsized impact in comparison to the thirty thousand dollar price tag. Is that right? That's exactly right. I, I look at Bitcoin as like a, a what many people call like a Veblen good, which is a good that actually the demand for the good increases as the price increases. So like, you know, luxury is, is, is considered a Veblen good. Uh, but more than that, it's like if you employ Bitcoin as this long term asset where the number one rule of Bitcoin should be that you forget that you own any Bitcoin, then by definition, there is a supply shock that isn't necessarily priced in today. In 10 years, if you have nation states competing on, you know, amassing Satoshis, then every dollar that's going into Bitcoin is going to be sucked up by a subset of that 21 million fixed supply. Uh, so there is definitely a case to be made that the more we see nation state adoption institutions and the more that's uh, it's it's seen as less of a speculative bet and as a long term investment, then then we then we might see this kind of live based on just small inflows. Um, and even if we don't see the small inflows and, and you know, I, I'd urge you to, to read it for, for the audience, our white paper that was published a, a, a year and a half ago that, that details some of these use cases, including economic settlement network and digital gold and seizure resistant asset. Um, you know, these are all, I think, um, pretty reasonable estimates. Uh, if you do believe that Bitcoin is this global monetary asset, 
and, and really kind of a generational opportunity uh, to, to really put your foot in the ground in, 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 in the digital world. Um, as the economy shifts to the digital you, you see, and I want to go through some of these categories yeah, so really absolutely. quick, particularly for um, the podcast listeners. So if you're watching yeah. on YouTube, you can you can see this slide and, and you can see the breakdown. But, you know, for the podcast listeners, I'll just rattle them off really quick. And maybe you could give some color commentary, um, you know, where you think it, it, uh, it requires it. So when you say this thing, like the estimates are you know, somewhat conservative, they're, they're not wild, they're not crazy. The, the way you get to uh, $28.5 trillion, which is a million dollar Bitcoin price, is by consuming 50% of gold's mar market cap and being the digital gold. So that's where a chunk of this comes from. By being a corporate treasury, that's where 5% uh, of this, 5% uh, of cash on the S&P 500 would be invested in corporate treasury. And we've seen some of this with MicroStrategy. We've seen some of this in other you know, companies that are acquiring Bitcoin for their balance sheets. 2.5% um, of in institutional asset based bases is Bitcoin. Like right now, it's it's gotta be far less than, than 1% for institutional investments, right? Uh, and then we have 5% of global high net worth investments. So these are all of the kind of the global whales, the billionaires and the you know hundreds of millionaires of the world. They choose to store 5% of their wealth in Bitcoin as a, as a seizure resistant uh, asset. And then 1% of uh, total reserves of nation state treasuries go, go to Bitcoin. And this is just like, what, what you see here in, the, in these things is just kind of an extrapolation of a trend that we've already seen, right? So right. El Salvador, they're acquiring Bitcoin. Okay, now what would it look like if you throttle that up to 1% of all nation state treasuries? Um, you know, high net worth individuals, billionaires are already buying Bitcoins. What happens if that becomes 5%? Institutional investments, we're already seeing that with institutions are coming with, you know, big endowments and that sort of thing. Corporate treasuries, the MicroStrategy example, and then this belief of, of digital gold. So all of these things are happening. What you're doing is you're just kind of extrapolating them and uh, quantifying, at, you know, as a percentage of, of market share of, of how much they would uh, consume in each of these categories. Right. Do you have any color commentary on sure. that? So I can give you an example of like how we get to, let's say the two and a half percent or the 5%, right? I think to your point, all of these are, are taken from initial signals that we've seen the market uh, throw at us, right? If we see a Tesla allocating 8% of their balance sheet into Bitcoin and a square and a micro strategy, it's like, okay, do, is there a trend that's emerging? Um, so for, for the institutional investment, uh, we, we conducted uh, a Monte Carlo simulation uh, that basically uh, asked, what is the optimal portfolio allocation of Bitcoin uh, for an investor, a traditional investor that, that has exposure to all asset classes from emerging market currencies to real estate, to bonds, to equities, um, that would like to basically either minimize volatility of their portfolio or maximize their risk-adjusted returns. So what percent of Bitcoin should they put in their portfolio to achieve one of, two, one of those two um, optimizers? The two and a half percent is basically to minimize the volatility. So we basically took the last 10 years and saw the returns of asset classes, uh, including Bitcoin and said, okay, what percent of Bitcoin would need to be allocated into this portfolio? The answer was two and a half percent. Uh, this was actually the lower bound. The upper bound was 6.5%, where to maximize risk-adjusted returns, an investor should allocate 
uh, it, it, consistent with the asset class returns that we've seen um, in the last 10 years. Now, of course, this is on a on a on in hindsight. So there's also an analysis that we conducted on a perspective basis where it's like, okay, if we were to size the opportunity, uh, what would that look like? That ranged again between one and seven percent. So this is really like if you pitch to an institutional investor of look, you're a strategic allocator, you want to minimize uh, the correlation of returns across your asset classes. Adding Bitcoin to your portfolio is going to do exactly that. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily a, a, a tough sell for institutions. Um, as the seizure resistant asset is another you know, good example where we take the use case of Bitcoin, where with good public and private key management, Bitcoin isn't a seizure resistant or unseizable asset, right? If I'm custodying Bitcoin, on cold storage, uh, unless like someone comes knocking on my door and takes physically my private keys, there's no way for anyone to seize my Bitcoin. And as, as such, you can see it as really an insurance policy against arbitrary asset seizure, but whether that's through indirectly through inflation or directly through the outright confiscation of wealth or the freezing of bank accounts like we're seeing now in, in Canada, uh, like we saw during the Hong Kong protests. And, and there the 5% estimate is, is really, you know, us estimating what the probability uh, over a lifetime would be for an individual to have their assets seized. Uh, so you can say on any given year, it might be one one thousandth of a chance. So over 50 years, you multiply that, it's about 5%. So we're effectively equating that 5% to the probability that your assets might get seized over your lifetime. And as such, a sensible allocation should equate to that probability. So you take the $80 trillion of global high net worth wealth, you multiply that by 5%, and it gets you that, that $4 trillion opportunity uh, alone. So that's kind of the, 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 the rationale and uh, some of the logic that we, that we employ uh, going through these um, different opportunities. Just like I said at the beginning, these are not just uh, you know numbers that have been made up out of thin air. There's actual thought and analysis and, and rationale put behind the $1 million Bitcoin price tag like there also is with Ether and Ethereum and also some of the consumer metrics in the metaverse. So that is what is coming up next in the show right after we talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. If you're going bankless, you need MetaMask. This is your tool to unlock the world of DeFi without giving up custody over your private keys. MetaMask is both a secure in-browser wallet and also a secure bridge for your hardware wallet. You can now trade tokens on any DEX or aggregator. MetaMask Swap gathers real-time pricing information across all the DeFi exchanges, allowing you to select your best price while getting all the MetaMask benefits of self-custody, lower gas costs, and increased transaction success rates. MetaMask also has a fantastic mobile wallet that I use when I'm out and about which I use to collect POAPs, NFTs, and do all my DeFi things while I'm away from home. If you haven't downloaded MetaMask, you gotta try it out. Web3 wouldn't be the same without it. Download MetaMask for desktop and mobile at metamask.io and load up your Trezor, Ledger, Lattice, or Keystone hardware wallets so that they too can get into the world of Web3. Polygon is Ethereum's largest and most vibrant scaling solution to date. With millions of monthly users and all of the biggest DeFi apps, the Polygon ecosystem has turned into a blossoming metropolis of DeFi activity. Transactions on Polygon are quick and cheap, allowing users the freedom to achieve their DeFi goals, all while being economically anchored to Ethereum. 
But Polygon isn't just the proof-of-stake sidechain. The Polygon team is building a suite of scaling solutions, including Polygon Hermes, Maiden, Nightfall, and Zero, all with different design choices in order to be optimized for all possible crypto use cases. If you're a developer who wants to build on the Polygon ecosystem, go to the link in the show notes to check out their fantastic documentation. And if you're a user who just wants to experience fast and cheap DeFi, you can bridge over your ETH or other tokens and start playing around with any of the thousands of applications that are available on Polygon. Bankless is proud to be sponsored by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum that lets you trade any token at the current market price. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. The Uniswap Grants Program is accepting applications for grants. Do you have something of value that you think you want to contribute to the Uniswap ecosystem? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at uniswapgrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. All right, guys, we are back with Yassine and Frank from ARK Invest talking all about the big ideas report, specifically the crypto section of the big ideas report. And this is where we're going to get into the Ethereum, DeFi, Metaverse, NFT side of the conversation. Uh, And this is a theme that we've talked about on Bankless a number of times before. And to me, it explains how Ethereum and stuff on Ethereum is always just so goddamn investable. Uh, it's very investable things. Uh, and, and this is a slide that says, uh, talks about the LTM revenue per employee in the millions of dollars. Frank, can you explain for the listeners what LTM revenue per employee means and what this chart slash graph is, uh, is showing? Yeah, definitely. So on the, on the definition front, LTM is last 12 months revenue. Um, we used on-chain data for the crypto-based protocols you see here. We used quarterly financial statements for the traditional finance companies. Um, and then for employee, we used uh, LinkedIn numbers. Uh, but the, the really uh, key idea here is we wanted to show, one, the scale of, of what kind of revenues are these crypto native uh, applications or companies uh, operating at? And how does that compare to traditional financial institutions? Uh, and well, it's not the same on the absolute level. If you look at the amount of revenue that these protocols are generating per employee, which uh, has significantly lower operating costs and operating needs than some of these traditional companies. You can see you get a massive amount of leverage in crypto native protocols compared to traditional institutions and traditional financial networks. And that's for a few different reasons. It's because you don't have counterparty risk. You have less parties involved. You could spend way more money on developers and way less money on compliance and marketing and operations. Your protocols are global by default. Uh, you have all these things that allow you to gain a lot of leverage. And to like sum it up broadly, I'd say it's the power of building on top of open source networks. Uh, you can also think of composability. Uh, MetaMask didn't have to build its own AMM to operate as a brokerage in your pocket. Uh, it can plug into Uniswap and it can plug into SushiSwap and it can get you the best rate across all of DeFi. And so this composability is another thing that lets uh, you know, decentralized protocols uh, operate at much higher leverage than a, a, a traditional company. I want, I want folks to just kind of really understand this because it's something we've, we've talked about on Bankless. The, the amount that, let's take Uniswap as an example, the amount that they've been able to do with like 15 to 20 employees is absolutely mind-blowing. And you have a chart that compares Uniswap 
to the New York Stock Exchange on LTM revenue per employee. So what, what's interesting about this is it's revenue per employee, right? So it's like normalizes it on an employee basis. And if you look at the Uniswap section, we're talking about $40 million worth of top line revenue that Uniswap generates per employee, if I'm reading this correctly, Frank. And the direct comparison, if you wanna take an analog to Uniswap, what, what is Uniswap? It's kind of like a DeFi's New York Stock Exchange. And the New York Stock Exchange per employee generates revenue too, but it's like, you can barely see it on the chart. It's like below a million here. I don't know if it's like 300K or something like that. It's in that range. So we got a Uniswap with 20 people generating 40 million per person. And we got a New York Stock Exchange with like buildings full of people, lots of paperwork, lots of infrastructure, uh, all of this stuff uh, that they have to register in the real world and they're generating far less revenue per employee. If that doesn't show you the efficiency of software eating money, software eating banks, software eating finance, I don't know. I don't know how else to show it because this is incredible to see. Did I get some of that right, Frank? Yeah, definitely. I, I think that sums it up well. Um, to be a little bit fair to the New York Stock Exchange, their revenue is listing fees, and market makers are the ones keeping the market efficient. Uniswap doesn't even need market makers because it's an automated market maker, and it has liquidity provided from anybody who wants to provide liquidity and earn a yield on trading fees. Um, so it's not 100% apples to apples, but it gives you a, a really good feel there. Um, and I actually think, uh, you know, another way to look at this, but it's, it's harder to measure, may have been inspired by a former Bankless podcast. Uh, I might have heard somebody say that Uniswap is the most valuable code base line for line ever, uh, based on the market cap or the revenue um, per lines of code. And it's going to show that same thing. Um, I think this is, this is, yeah, go ahead. I'm pretty sure that was Chris that. Dixon. No, that was Chris Dixon, Ryan. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was Chris. That was Chris Dixon on our first I was going to say it was probably my, the smarter uh, co-host, David Hoffman, <laughs> probably said that because I don't remember saying it. <laughs> well, let's keep moving here. Wait, so no, before we do, one last oh, thing David. on this line. But uh, I, the, something stuck out to me in this report, uh, and it's this uh, TradFi word. Revenue, revenue per employee illustrates DeFi's efficiency relative, relative to that of traditional fat, finance, in parentheses, TradFi. Frank, you seen, is TradFi about to be a term that's going to be adopted by TradFi? <laughs> After GM and Wagme, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so maybe not. <laughs> it gets sad fi if I'm looking at this chart correctly. All right, well, let's get into the the happy fi, which is the next slide that's coming up next, which is slide 65 for those following along, which is Ether's market cap could exceed $20 trillion in the next 10 years. And it's at, we've got a pretty simple looking chart here with a little bit of an, of an explainer comparing the current market cap of Ether, which is at, clocking in at 0.4 uh, trillion dollars and comparing that to all global financial services, the market cap of all global financial services at 22.5 trillion dollars. Frank, can you explain to us why this comparison is justified and how uh, this kind of lends itself to why Ethereum, uh, uh, Ether's market cap might exceed 20 trillion dollars? Yeah, definitely. Um, so going back to something that we opened this conversation with, uh, there's a lot of things about crypto assets that are so new and so different that you can't model them like traditional companies. But there's also some places where they overlap and you can. And you can think of all of the transactions that are happening on Ethereum, uh, especially post EIP 1559, where the transaction fees are, are burnt and returned to token holders. 
um, as revenue for that chain. And, and it actually directly translates to earnings in that the revenue is fully burnt and going back to token holders. And so you can kind of look as, as more and more volume moves on chain, how revenue accrues to that, uh, to that underlying currency in this case, either. And what we see with DeFi across not just you know, one or two segments of financial services, but across the full spectrum of exchanges to lending, to asset management, to insurance, everything that was on that previous slide, plus more, plus net new things that don't even exist in traditional finance, you're seeing more and more revenue uh, at the margin sucked out of traditional finance and moving on chain and net new financial services revenue being created on chain. And so what we see is, you know, over the next 10 years, this market cap, uh, which is, you know, oh, you could think of as a multiple over revenue or a multiple over earnings moving into the, the protocols that power this future financial system uh, in this case, Ether. Um, so we think over, you know, the next 10 years and, we see this really as the market cap opportunity uh, for uh, what Ether as supporting a global financial system could look like. And this reminds me of the very first slide that we talked about in this show where blockchain networks really allow for kind of in the same way the internet allowed TV, radio, you know, insert your communication medium here, all came onto the internet. Perhaps Ethereum allows all global financial services to eventually make its way onto Ethereum or, you know, pick your favorite smart contract blockchain here. Uh, is, that, is that kind of what we're, we're alluding to here, Frank? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's also like just a generalized development platform with smart contracts. You get all the financial services that you can code up, plus you get new things that people create with it. And that kind of gets into the, the NFTs and the Web3 and, and all of that as well. Um, but the, the other thing I'd call attention to here is the, is the global M2 opportunity where we're increasingly seeing, you know, if you have a global financial system built on top of Ethereum, the native currency, the, the most secure form of, of currency on that blockchain, uh, you can ascri ascribe it some value, uh, uh, some monetary value. And you can do it almost similar to how we did it for Bitcoin. And we don't break out a specific number here. Uh, but you see uh, like El Salvador is uh, adopting Bitcoin, for example, and that's an emerging market. Uh, in the same way, Ethereum is being adopted by NFTs, and that's its own emerging market that gives value to, to Ether. Um, so we're, we're kind of you know, seeing this hybrid between a, a global development platform that earns revenue from the economies built on top, plus value to the currency or to the token as being the native currency in that economy. This is cool. I, and I think maybe for bankless listeners, uh, you know, we'll start to see some some repetition here in terms of how other analysts we've had on the podcast see Ether as an asset in terms of how we see it. But uh, Frank, if I'm interpreting you correctly, basically almost the base case here, if you ignore the monetary premium, if you start thinking about Ether as a, what we might call a capital asset and start doing like things you do with equity analysis, which is discounted cash flow analysis, right? And, and, and you think about the DCF of, of Ether as an asset, uh, accruing you know blockchain fees and that going to uh, people who stake uh, as something that is you know productive productive and income generating is sort of like a you know a dividend if you will in stock buybacks and bankless listeners will recall the DCF episode that we did just two or three episodes ago that talks about that discounted cash flow analysis that's how you get to ether getting to like you know the size of the global financial services industry which is about 20 trillion dollars okay so that alone, is almost like the base case for this thing. And that assumes maybe something like Bitcoin eats all of the monetary premium in the space. None of that flows to, to Ether. But then you stuck this global M2 next to it, 
which shows like the potential for monetary premium that also exists if Ether does continue to transition more towards a monetary asset and a store of value medium of exchange. And then the potential grows to like the tens of trillions to hundreds of trillions. And you start to look at uh, some of the factors that went into the Bitcoin price analysis and you add that to Ether as well. So at some level, depending on how things work out, and like, of course we never know, but like the $20 trillion, which is 180K ETH price point is sort of the conservative base case for what Ether could become, or at least maybe the smart contract platform segment as, as a whole, if you believe that Ether's lunch is going to be eaten, eaten by all of these other chains. Uh, did I put that correctly? Yeah, definitely. And, and that goes towards the uh, what I was going to just wrap up with is that it's important to note that the financial and internet revolutions, kind of this whole space, is actually a lot more competitive than the money revolution. And so we can pretty confidently say we think, based on our rather, <laughs> could call it conservative or crazy bullish, depending on which way you look at it, but why we feel really good about Bitcoin there, this is the opportunity for Ether, uh, but it also has a lot more competitors, and, and we'll see, you know, quickly uh, over the next few years how the market weighs the different decisions and the different trade-offs that each blockchain is making. So I just want to paint the most bullish possible scenario. Say I'm an ETH maxi, and I think Ether is not only going to win the smart contract wars, but also the money wars. Would we take that $22.5 uh, billion market cap, the 56X that Ether is already going to grow, and then multiply that by uh, five more, four, or no, six more times to get to the global M2? Is that, is that what would be the logical conclusion of this? Dean, what's your point? What's your thought? <laughs> Defer. <laughs> if, if Ethereum is the one that completely swipes the floor of the whole entire crypto industry, which I don't think is going to happen, but if it did, yeah, would it go to $122 billion? I think David wants to hear the I answer of yes on that. The floor, it would be more so you'd add the 22 and a half to the, the 28 uh, and a half that we sized for Bitcoin. Okay. Uh, so it, it would be, call it 50 trillion. Because the global M2, like you have to, I don't, you, you have to assume that it replaces global M2 entirely mm. when, I, mm -hmm. when I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think what, to Frank's point though, which is really interesting, is that there are, um, you know, creative additive opportunities that, that Ethereum is unlocking where we don't even know like how to size that. I think it's analogous, like how do you size the internet in the, in the late 90s? I think that that's where the opportunity for Ethereum is. Is like there could be these these parallel um, opportunities that emerge outside of the money case that we don't even know exist today. Um, so, in that sense, there is no upper bound, David. That's what I like to hear you, Seem. <laughs> All right, guys. So the, there, that was the Ethereum section. We've covered Bitcoin, we've covered Ethereum, but there are two slides left in the Web3 NFT era that I thought were just really, really good. And so I want to, I want to unpack those a little bit. So we're getting into uh, slide number 70 and 71, Ryan, if you want to go there. And this slide is NFTs could shift from static collectibles to dynamic digital assets. So you're saying the end game of this whole NFT phenomenon isn't to just to collect JPEGs? What is it actually going to be when it actually matures and develops along its trajectory? Yeah, I think the, you know, especially because of how the market has been over the past year, the, it, the, the trend is, you know, we're flipping JPEGs. It's just art. You know, there's not much to it. 
Um, but when you really think of it and what, you know, a lot of this section of the, of the report is predicated on is that NFTs are, are functioning as a form of digital property rights that give us the ability as internet users to own our data for the first time. In web two, you have social media where it's really user generated content, uh, but you don't own that content that you're generating. It's the centralized platforms like Facebook and Instagram that are owning the data. NFTs allow the user to own the data that they're generating, and that unlocks pretty profound things. And it also incentivizes more spending on digital content because you can actually own that content and it can't be taken away from you uh, as easily. Um, so when we, when we look at how these NFTs are evolving from just images or JPEGs, um, they, they'll be used actually similar to what Yassine just said in use cases we can't even think of yet. Uh, but I think the first, you know, that we're really seeing, and this is showing that as well, but the first that we're really seeing is gaming. Uh, there's, you know, there's games like Fortnite that generate $5 billion, which blows my mind every time I hear it, but $5 billion in revenue from in-game assets that users can't do anything with. It just makes their character look cooler, but they still want to buy it. Um, and there's this social like aspect to it. There's a status signaling aspect to it. Um, but increasingly, we're seeing more and more projects adopt this, I think, or adopt the same concept of in-game purchases, uh, but on crypto native rails that gives you the option to uh, exchange assets or sell assets or cash out or have portable assets that could be used across multiple virtual worlds or games, uh, creating a, a much more like interactive and, and high fidelity experience that you can use your NFTs for. And I think like a really good example of this, like where this ties into, you could do things that we didn't think would happen or be possible is uh, something that we caught on Twitter uh, in, uh, I think it was Indonesia, uh, the Axie Infinity, one of the native tokens uh, when you're playing the game is Smooth Love Potion or SLP. And the, the game has been popular, or, you know, really blown up as a way to actually make income in some of these developing areas. And so much so that people aren't actually exiting out of SLP to, to do things in real life or in the physical world. There's a, a cab, and what I'm getting to is a, a cab driver and a cab company accepting SLP as payment for your cab. So you have an in-game asset that's something that you can use to breed your axes and you know a full game mechanic utility, but you can also use it outside that platform if somebody's willing to accept it as a form of payment. And that merging of you know data portability plus your, your in-game asset is also utility outside of that game. It, it is really incredible. And guys, I want to go on to this last slide because this is what I think culminates in this grand story that we're all talking about, these new digital experiences. And that's slide 75 and, and 76 where we, we, we were, ARC has predicted or uh, the, just the online consumption, the online monetization, money moving around in digital worlds f across di digital projects, uh, products starts to uh, move beyond uh, real products, you know, you know like Web2 products or just actual you know, physical atoms. Uh, and to me, my, when I interpreted uh, slide 75 and slide 86, it was really just the growth of the metaverse. Uh, this is really what we're talking about at, at the end of the day, uh, especially this one with the, with the chart here. Frank, can you just unpack these, uh, these charts here and, and kind of tell us your interpretations of them? Yeah, so, so ultimately, you know, you can trend over time that we've been spending more and more time online, and that's only been accelerated by the pandemic. And with technologies like crypto native NFTs that 
allow you to actually own your assets. We're seeing, an, and we forecast, an acceleration of spending into digital goods over physical goods that will ultimately, we think, converge the, the monetization rate or the, the dollars of revenue generated per hour spent online. Uh, the online version is going to approach the monetization rate of offline, basically saying, you know, in short, that users will eventually or, or individuals will eventually value digital goods as much as they do physical goods. Uh, and that's going to have you know, massive ramifications. And one of those being uh, reducing the spending and what you see on 76 is reducing the spending on physical goods and increasing the spending on digital goods. Yeah, well, if that doesn't scream the metaverse and I don't know what does. And that's one, something I think that so many people already resonate with. We already know that people spend money on Fortnite skins before they were actual digital on-chain goods. And having it actually be able to be an on-chain good uh, is a, just an unlock for the value of those things and really incentivizes even more consumption. Um, guys, just seeing Frank, thank you so much for, for running through some of the, the most profound slides about Bitcoin, Ether, and, and the metaverse and Web3. Um, just any last uh, open-ended comments about where you think this industry is going over the next five, five to ten years that might not have made it into these slides? Frank, you want to take that one first? I think, I mean, what's really interesting, and we were kind of talking about this before we hopped on the show, is the the proof points that we're getting that crypto is becoming uh, more mainstream and, and higher adoption and more of a day-to-day a, a -day topic that I think has more legs than the, the speculative thing that we saw in 2017 and 18. That cycle with the, the ICO boom and bust had a lot of hype and a lot of speculation and very little follow-through. Uh, what we're seeing now is, is a market where you can see actual products being developed, uh, millions of users actually engaging with these projects, and also a segmentation and diversification uh, outside of just, hey, this is a, a token like Bitcoin and Litecoin and Bitcoin Cash, you know, all of these things that are kind of copies of the same. We're seeing more differentiation in crypto. And the more that, you know, things like El Salvador adopting Bitcoin is legal tender, or Canada uh, potentially freezing bank accounts, uh, essentially asset seizure, uh, the more that we're seeing the proof point for crypto play out. Uh, and I expect we'll see more and more of those over the next five to 10 years. Um, the, the last thing I'd say, which I also think is really interesting, is that uh, regulation is often talked about as a, as a negative for crypto or something that will eventually you know, slam the hammer down and stop the industry. Uh, but we're seeing, you know, two recent proof points. One is is uh, both, you know, Miami and New York City mayors accepting paychecks in crypto. Crypto is becoming a popular thing for politicians to support rather than crack down on, uh, at least in some segments of the political sphere. And also how increasing acts of regulation can actually provide the clarity needed for more people to join the system. Uh, so you saw BlockFi being fined $100 million dollars. Uh, for their for their interest accounts, and they are pausing that for now, but they're going through the formal process with the SEC to register those as a security, so they can eventually offer those to consumers again, which not just allows them to continue selling that product and offering that product, but it opens the door for somebody like Coinbase, who was blocked from offering a similar product, to offer that product. And for many other companies, now they see the proper process to go through, to launch crypto-based products. And so I think we'll see that continue to develop and how more rules of the road that come in uh, will broaden the, the, you know, the total market for crypto. 
Yeah, it's so funny to me, that BlockFi thing, we have other thoughts on, we'll, we'll get to you in an episode later this week in the roll-up, but how that is um, widening the lane for, for more adoption in crypto. And it's funny how BlockFi had to actually do it and then ask for forgiveness later for the SEC to actually weigh in, but it's really forced the SEC's hand. Yassine, what would you say, closing comments for us, reflecting on all of this? Yeah, I mean, I just echo Frank and saying this is all unbelievable to be witnessing in real time. And so this is my fourth big ideas. And when I look back at like the first 2018 or 2019 big ideas of we were assessing Google trends of Turkey and saw a spike in emerging markets to fast forward four years. And it's like you have an emerging market currency that is adopted as as legal tender. It's like who knows what the next four years is going to look like. Uh, so these are always great to just kind of see the evolution of crypto in real time. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I don't know what's next. It, it, just like I didn't know what was next the, the last year and compared to where we are today. So um, in any case, the, it's awesome definitely to be on the show and appreciate you guys having us on. Well, thank you guys. We uh, we do know one thing that happens next, and that is number go up. I think <laughs> if these things come it's to also, fruition, I, I must say a disclaimer: this is not investment advice. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course, purely for uh, informational and research purposes only. Informational and research purposes only, um, but definitely, definitely bullish uh, on this report and these statements. And Ark has had a fantastic track record predicting some of these things before they happen. So Yasin and Frank, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for having us. Bankless listeners, if you like what you heard, make sure you like, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. If you're on Apple iTunes, write us a review, give us a five star uh, as well. We'll include links to resources in the show notes, including the slides that we talked about today. Go scan those when you have some time. Of course, as you've seen said, none of this was financial advice. It never is on Bankless. Bitcoin is risky. So is ETH. So is DeFi. You could definitely lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the Bankless journey. Thanks a lot.